Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Laura Fabricki is an American writer living in Brussels, Belgium. Her work has been published in Books and Culture, The Foreign Service Journal, Good Housekeeping Middle East, The Review of Faith and International Affairs, Comment, Christianity Today, Fathom, and elsewhere. She focuses on questions of political theology and cultivating the moral imagination for the common good. Laura's husband is a career diplomat, so she's lived overseas for much of her adult life. During their stint in Berlin, Germany, she became a tour guide at the Bonhoeffer House, the house where the adult Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived when he was in Berlin and where he was arrested by the Nazis. Laura's latest book, The Keys to Bonhoeffer's House, is an historically grounded memoir of her experience there. Laura Fabricki, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. It's really great to be with you, Jonathan. Thanks. Uh, you were a tour guide at the Bonhoeffer House in Berlin for a couple of years, right? That's correct, yes. And so your book, The Keys to Bonhoeffer's House, uh, tell us about what you learned in that process. Yes. Yeah, it's my book is, as I describe it, it's a historically grounded memoir about my experience as a volunteer guide at the Bonhoeffer House. And our family had moved to Berlin uh, for my husband's next diplomatic assignment in mm -hmm. the summer of 2016. And as we were settling into life there, I discovered that we lived literally within biking distance of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's adult residence. So it wasn't the home that he grew up in, but it was the home that he lived in as an adult when he would come to Berlin. And it was the home that the Gestapo arrested him, him from in, in 1943. And it's now a memorialized home, like officially recognized um, as, a, as a memorial site, as there are many places in Germany that are related to World War II and to the Nazi era. And so when I learned that, I made, we scheduled a visit with our family to go. And I kept going back. I would schedule more visits and I kind of became known there enough that <laughs> some of the guides would say, oh, Frau Fabricki, here you are again. And just like, yeah, here I am. And, uh, and then I asked them kind of jokingly, like, could I, I, I should come so often, I should become a volunteer here. And they said, yeah, you should. And, and, and that was the point at which I kind of made a more diligent effort to learn Bonhoeffer's life and to learn how to narrate it to others. Yeah. Okay. Now, so that, in that house, um, you, you learned a lot about from, from being present in that house. Um, the Bonhoeffer story went from being this abstraction to something very concrete and very something that you lived in. Yeah. I had a vague, you know, kind of growing up in the church, I had a vague kind of ambient knowledge, you know, from just yeah. understanding it from like, references in sermons or from professors that I admired. But um, I, you know, I had also known of him as a Christian hero. So I had sort of the Hollywood idea of who Bonhoeffer was, which is a very kind of American telling of his life mm -hmm. and imagines him as sort of this, you know, a David against the Nazi Goliath. And I had never really thought of him as an, an actual flesh and blood person and not simply yeah. a character in a heroic tale. And, and then to actually situate him 
in a physical home, not even a museum, but it really feels like a house, like just a regular house, um, kind of bust open all the, all the categories that I had. And I, um, I kind of, I really wanted to get to know him as a man. And it was, I realized that in order to do that, I actually had to get to know, uh, the shape of his life in relationship to, to other people and to stories of his life, like his family's stories and, and then his relationship even to his nation. And so in some ways it helped me to kind of unpack those. Oh, sorry. I hate that word. I hate using them. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Start over. Um, exploring his life through the, through the lens of his house helped me to think better about the places of my life, the stories of my life and the stories that I live in that are related to my country and my nation as an American. So not related to Bonhoeffer's German life. Yeah. So you, you said a minute ago that you had kind of an Americanized vision of Bonhoeffer. Um, can you say more about that? What do you mean when you say an Americanized vision or I'm, you might not have said vision, but, but an Americanized version. Of yeah. Version. Yeah. I mean, I, I think probably this, the, the, the biggest feature of that story um, has a very bright and central lens on him as the singular and central character of his, his own life. And um, it, it, if you imagine his life as a, as a stage, the spotlight is always on him. And as I got to know him better, I realized that the spotlight kept getting wider and wider and that more people, we needed to account for more people in the story of mm. his life. And that I don't think he would have even put his own life as centrally as we tend to place it. Um, and uh, he really, he understood Christ as the center and he also understood the church as not simply a group of atomized individuals who are the central players in their own lives, but as people who are intimately related to one another in Jesus and we become proximate and he becomes central. And, um, that was, that to me was in some ways what the house represented was this, not that Bonhoeffer wasn't there, but that he was not as central a character as I had imagined him to be. And I think that that's a very, very common American telling of his life. Uh-huh. You use a phrase, at least one of your endorsers quoted you as saying, people matter to places. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that, that um, line comes in uh, a chapter, one of the later chapters that's related to um, my exploration of his friendship with his friend, Eberhard Bethke. And I, I use it to say um, that even for Bonhoeffer and for his friend Eberhard Bethke, who wrote the definitive biography of Bonhoeffer, um, he, they, their friendship belonged to the house and, and to these to particular places. And, um, and we do too. Like all of our learning, all of our, all of our engagement in the world um, is through our bodies, like our bodies and our bodies matter to places. And we can't be absolutely everywhere, even though we're talking through this, you know, digital format, yeah. like I'm in a place, you're in a place. And these places are, 
we can easily kind of imagine them away, but they're actually really integral and central to who we are as people and the stories that we tell, the way that we imagine ourselves. And so for me, the Bonhoeffer house was part of that. And, and Bonhoeffer and his friend Eberhard Bethke were, they belonged to one another and they belonged to that particular house. Like Bethke would come and stay over um, in their travels and they would hang out in his room and, um, you know, so that's, that's what I meant in that line. Well, so it's, it's, it's easier for me to understand the idea that places matter to people yeah. than that people matter to places. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit more about, about, about that distinction. Yeah. Um, I think because, because our family is in the U.S. Foreign Service, I tend to think a lot about how I how we move to new places and how those places kind of put their imprint on us, but that we also put our imprint on them. And we can't ever escape that kind of bodily exchange in some ways, like just literally breathing the air, eating food, smelling smells. Um, and, and obviously that describes kind of the way that a place and cultures bear on us but that we also bear on the places to which we belong. Um, and that's, that's in part what I'm hoping will, will come from readers engaging with my book, is that they will think about how they matter to the places that they live in, that they belong to, and that their imprint, what, what they actually bear on those places, their responsibilities to those places, the way that they articulate love and care for those places, mm -hmm. Yeah. Deeply matters. Yeah. One thing I, I kept thinking about as I was reading your, your descriptions of the Bonhoeffer house is something that, that gets said around the rat room often is feasting is an act of war. Mm. Um, and, um, and this, this house was a place where in spite of all there was joy and there was um, friendship and, and, and you know, and and good fellowship. Yeah, you know, I, I just finished uh, reading the Lord of the Rings. I've never read the Lord of the Rings all the way through before. That's and great. yeah, I know. I'm so proud of myself. Um, and uh, but the um, but the importance of joy and and the the word merry and merriment keeps c coming up in that in that story because you know evil its first casualty or maybe, you know, maybe not its first casualty, but one of the first casualties is joy. Yes. And so yes. that, so that pleasure is sort of the first, the first bait, but then, you know, it's, it's not the, the, the mission of, of evil to, to hand out pleasures that lures us in with pleasures, but then takes those pleasures away. Yes. Uh, Bonhoeffer's house is a place where, where, where joy persisted in spite of evil. Absolutely. And I think that's something that I think we don't get as much in Bonhoeffer per se. Like we can read his letters, but because he was formed as a German academic, we get a lot of German academicness out of him. But yeah. apparently he actually had a pretty decent sense of humor. And mm -hmm. I know he knew how to party. Like he, he definitely knew how to have a good time. And he learned a lot of his a lot of his skills and having a good time in his family, first and foremost. His mom especially yeah. was really skilled at gathering people, disarming people, um, mm. uh, creating fun events where there's often a lot of communal singing. I think that's one of the things that I found so 
think something that we've really lost is, um, and not that I'm trying to recapture, I'm not advocating for everyone to do communal singing, but just that they, they really knew what to do with themselves when they got together. They knew how yeah. to have a good time. And so it's, I think it is easy to kind of get mesmerized by the, all the, like the political conspiracy. And of course, anything related to Nazi Germany just makes it just dark and dramatic, but underneath their um, refusal to participate in, in the Nazi uh, myth was underneath that was this deep and I think rightly defiant joy and a joy in what mm. is what makes human life good and pleasurable. Yeah, I love it. Um, a phrase you use, and you didn't originate it, um, but you use it to good effect, and that is civic housekeeping. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and which sounds like what you're des- part of what you're describing when you talk about what was going on in the Bonhoeffer house. Definitely. So part of the, the Bonhoeffer family knew how to feast and they knew how to, and they knew how to be together in a, in a really pleasurable and formational way. And they also saw that as not simply something that what happened within their walls, but that actually needed to be connected to their neighbors and mm-hmm. their, and to, to fellow citizens. So, um, ideally, uh, Ideally, all of our politics is informed by that more basic sense of joy and pleasure in, in forming bonds of affection and friendship and belonging and care. Um, and I think they really saw their participation, and I think this also informed Dietrich's participation in, uh, in, in being willing to fight for something that was good. Um, yeah it came from that a deeper place of joy. So civic housekeeping, you're right. I, it's not from Bonhoeffer. Um, I, I take it from Jane Adams, who was, um, uh, you know, a leader in kind of social justice in the early um, 20th century, the early 1900s. And she, she saw that, um, she saw civic housekeeping as something that was primarily in the language of women and women's work. Mm. Um, but it but it was caring for larger spaces outside of the home. So she actually in Chicago, um, she worked. She created a place called the Whole House. I'm sorry, this is a lot of Jane Adams. If you want to take some <laughs> out, you can. But I see I see a lot of these. You know, Bonhoeffer never used this language, but I see him doing very similar kinds of things. A care for his nation that attended to civic spaces and caring for neighbors and. Um, and I think as Americans, it's something that we've lost. It's actually part of our story, and I want us to get it back and to see it as something that, that we can joyfully participate in. And, um, and I think that Bonhoeffer is a, is a kind of a classic example of someone who is doing civic housekeeping. Yeah. I tell you what, um, I, I know that here in the middle of this, you know, we're recording this in the middle of the coronavirus yeah. quarantine, and so I, I know it, it gets a little tiresome talking about this all the time. However... Um, I've noticed in my little, in my neighborhood, the, the fact that, that we can't get in our, well, we don't get in our cars and go do other things means suddenly, you know, we're all out walking around and we, from a safe distance are talking to one another. I've met people I've never known. Now I know what their dog's names are. And it just feels like this kind of reset that, and a reminder that we live our lives locally. Yes. And we, we, it's so easy to forget that in I mean, and you're in Brussels, Belgium, and I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. And so in that sense, we're, 
um, you know, what we're doing right now sort of belies what I'm saying. But but the the truth is, you know, I've been I've been praying and hoping. You know, none of my work requires that I be local. Yeah. And so I've been thinking about you know having a more local life. I didn't wasn't quite picturing this local. Um, but it's, but it's been doing good, good work in my heart, really, to, to have such a local life and to know my neighbors. And, and, um, and this is, this all feels relevant to what you're talking about. Yeah, I think it is. And, and you rightly say we're recording this in the midst of, um, you know, and my book was released in the midst of this pandemic. And it's been interesting to see what some of the arguments that I make in it, how they matter to this moment in time. And I think they Mm. do. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I think we're being in some ways it's, it's an awful moment and, um, but we're being given the opportunity to discover things that we might not have been ever forced to look at. And I think that's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I want to close the loop on all this with regard to writing, because this is supposed to be a writing podcast. I think everything you said is relevant to writing, but now is the time to, to sort of bring it back to that. Um, civic housekeeping, what does that have to do with, with the work of the writer? Um, I think in part it, for me, I've actually given this a lot of thought. It matters. Um, it matters to, in a number of ways, it matters to what I read and it matters to my faithfulness in actually writing. So if in my vocation as a writer, I actually have to be quite attentive to what I read. And we live in a time in which it is very easy to be mindless about our reading. And so I know on some of your earlier conversations um, on this podcast, you've talked about sort of the deep work or um, how attenuated our our, uh, levels of concentration have gotten. And um, so for me, it's important that I set aside time where I am doing concentrated and deep reading. And, and exercising, literally exercising with a pen on paper, writing. Uh-huh. Um, and so to me, those are things that I'm, I regularly both fight and also try to incorporate in, um, in my life as a writer. And I see that as kind of writing housekeeping. Uh-huh. And what, by the way, what kind of reading is, are you doing that's when the, the reading you are making yourself or making sure that you do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. making yourself do, but make, I making sure. I tend to read, I tend to typically have a book that I'm reading that's more related to my spiritual life. I'm rereading Kathleen Norris's Acedia and Me right now. Oh man, what a book. It's such a good book. Um, And then I'm also, I'm working on entertaining another book idea that's related to life in Belgium. That's Mm -hmm. about, called Cities of Ladies and it's about the Beguines. Uh, the begin uh, religious movement. So more on that later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's like an academic book. It's like, you know, it's a very dense study about, about the, you know, er, late medieval begin religious movement. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know anything about the begin. That's why I got to write a book about it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. I, I think, the the things you're talking about, you know, when you talk about you know love of neighbor and uh, you know cultivating um, now now I'm 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 drawing a blank on the language you're using, but it was it was so good in, in terms of mm-hmm. that, that our our political you're you're in a foreign service family and are, are 
think a lot about about the larger issues than I do, probably in terms of uh, world events and, and, and politics. Um, but as you say, I don't care how big the scale is. It starts with you know this sort of local life, loving your neighbor, and and um, uh, uh, cultivating a moral imagination that yeah. is. Um, that makes sense, right? That, that's not that's not market driven, for instance. And and if, if we are, um, you know, whatever our, our positions are on on markets or on politics, um, hopefully they're they are informed by um, these these deeper con- these connections that go way deeper than yeah. economics and politics and these other things. And and I think that they, the the writer the writer has a gift and responsibility um, to to shape those those bonds. Yes, and a writer needs to be um, a particularly writer that does understand themselves as related to other people and not just mm-hmm. operating out of their own sense of self actualization. Right. <laughs> yeah. I I I care very much about the life of the mind, about the moral imagination, and I even care about the political imagination. I studied political theory in college. I I continue to be a student of political theory and political theology. I think that the metaphors and images that we use to think about politics um, very much shape our political lives. And I tend to think of politics, I refuse to give into politics as a context sport. I think politics is simply how we relate to one another. It's just simply how we do community. And so that's part of what I'm also doing in this book is I am wanting to seed the ground with some uh, different forms of fertilizer and hoping that different things will grow. And, and I see that in my, in my task as a writer is to uh, turn up ground, pull out stones, and then hopefully plant and fertilize some new, new ideas. I love it. Uh, talk to me about, you, you, you spoke of uh, political metaphors. Yes. Um, what's a, so instead of politics as a context sport, um, what's a better metaphor than, I guess that's a simile. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's a better simile? Um, I mean, you may have already you, are, you may have already said all you have to say on the subject, but but what what metaphors can we replace? Yeah, I, I mean, I would prefer to think of politics in terms of pothole filling and solving hard hard problems with a group of people, and uh-huh. so we're typically there are a lot of you know there's sausage making as the metaphor for politics, right? Like there's the, you don't want to see it being made, but it gets made. Um, There's also the, the classic metaphor of politics is a, um, you know, slow, boring through hard boards. There's those kinds of images. Mm -hmm. I tend to think of it as more in, on a street filling potholes. We find on a street, we are related to each other. We are all using these pathways and we're going to hit potholes and we need to figure out who's going to fill it, how it's going to get paid for. That's basically what politics is. Yeah. Good. I like it. Good. There's a humility in the way you talk about your relationship to Bonhoeffer and Bonhoeffer's house. Uh, that I think is really helpful for writers. Um, so there are two things you say, and we'll, we'll, I think we can get to both of them. Um, you said at one point that you were tempted to discern analogies between Dietrich Bonhoeffer's world and your own, but you learned to resist that temptation. Um, 
how it, well, let's start with why, why do you resist the temptation to, to, you know, discern analogies between his time and yours? That, that seems like a healthy thing to do when you consider an historical figure. Um, why, why do you resist the temptation to, to draw those analogies? Yeah. Um, Bonhoeffer's name gets invoked a lot, um, but he's often not really known for just being himself. He's often, I think, he's drawn into conversations about things like, we need a Bonhoeffer for our time. And mm-hmm. um, I was interested in understanding Bonhoeffer in his time. And I was also a little suspicious of um, making him my avatar, um, mm-hmm. like using him as the way that I would make a point. Um, it was kind of important to me, for me, and I'm very glad you see it as humility, but to establish myself as a character who is in a posture of learning and not as mm. the person becoming the expert. So um, I am still only a student of Bonhoeffer. The Bonhoeffer Scholar Guild is crowded and smart. And um, <laughs> um, there was I was never going to actually become a scholar of Bonhoeffer, but um, I was also very aware that Bonhoeffer, he's, he kind of inhabits the public imagination, a popular imagination. Like there's all kinds of historical fiction that's been written about him. And um, there's things that we don't know about him. He's kind of an easy character to paint and to use. And I was, I was concerned about kind of seeing him as sort of either an easy hero or a hero that I over-identified with. And I think mm-hmm. we do this even with scripture that, we always want to imagine ourselves as Bonhoeffer, just like we always want to imagine ourselves as David and never as the Goliath. And we tend to think that we would be Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany and not necessarily one of the German Christians who was um, uh, joyfully imbibing Nazi propaganda. Um, (laughs) And and I didn't want to take that for granted that I would be simply able to see as clearly and courageously the truth and the lies and, um, so I, I needed to kind of make sure I let him be him and to get a clear understanding of who I was and then to discover correspondences between our lives. And that's what I use as the metaphor and the keys. So right. I don't like Bonhoeffer did this, therefore you should do this. I try to say, well, this is what I see in him. And I think this is how it might correspond to, to my life and to other people's lives. And they, they seem kind of cute, but for me, they were the things that are this is really what I took away from my time at the Bonhoeffer house. I can't neatly say, figure out who's the, you know, who's the Nazi villain and then figure out who mm-hmm. that is in my life. I have to figure out my life. I have to actually have to understand the, the characters and the stage of my life. Um, yeah. so. um, there's a, at, at the end of um, Ava DuVernay's uh, documentary 13 or 13th, I can't remember I don't know if you've seen that. No, I haven't. But somebody, and I think it is, um, I think it might be, well, I'm not sure who it is at the end, who, who says, um, don't ask yourself, or, or, or don't, don't do the thought experiment of, you know, if I were in the, in the time period of slavery, what would I have done? Or if I were in the time period of Jim Crow, what, what would I have done? He says, you're already doing it. <laughs> what you, the way you're living right now is what you, it's yes. not like, 
And this was specifically with, with regard to race. It's not like this is all over and you can imagine what it, what it would have been like back then. Yeah. You're already being who, who you it's who not even who would have been. That's, right. yeah, it's, it, you, that's, that's who you are. Yes. Anyway, it was, it was, it was very convicting to me to tell you the truth that, that moment in, in that, in that documentary. Um, but um, next question related is you said, um, you said something along the lines of you were, you weren't making, you realized that you weren't making discoveries about mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer um, that you were just, um, you, just, you just had some keys. Um, yeah. Tell me what's the difference in having keys and making discoveries. Yeah. I had to rely heavily on my German colleagues at the house on other scholars and other writers to teach me about Bonhoeffer. And yeah. so nothing that I was saying was particularly new. I was saying it for myself. I was saying it in a way that mattered, that helped me to understand his life. And, you know, my publisher thinks that other people might find it helpful as well. And, yeah. um, but I, in the same way that like Bonhoeffer was not a singular hero, I also was not the singular character in the story. Like I was discovering things that I needed re that needed to be restated in my life, but mm -hmm. it's not like they were major discoveries. Um, yeah. I think the places where we I found correspondence helped me to discover things, but in general, they're kind of um, just pretty standard human fare. Like we gotta love each other, you know, like just stuff that <laughs> has to be has to be reset over and over and over because we struggle to remember. Yeah. Did you uh, uh, struggle with self-doubt as you're going, I mean, knowing that, that people, people who knew a lot more than you about Bonhoeffer were going to read this book? Yes, constantly. I constantly yeah. struggle with self-doubt. I still do. I'm kind of, I'm, I have been nervous that I have done my due diligence as a student that I really can show to those who have who deeply know Bonhoeffer's work that I have done him justice. Mm -hmm. And I cared about that because he's not someone that I can simply, he, I can't paint him by number. He was a real human being and there's real documents that, you know, that we can refer to. And I had to, I can't, I couldn't just make stuff up and I couldn't just say what I thought it had to be correspond uh -huh. to like a, a historical record. Um, so it, it, yes, I struggled a lot with doubt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you pushed through and wrote this anyway, because as you said, I mean, you're, you're not framing this as here's a definitive story of Bonhoeffer. Right? No, it's not. And, and what I hope though, is that, um, I, what I hope is that pe that readers will, will find their imaginations fired for their own places. And yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I uh, I wrote a, a biography, a spiritual biography of Flannery O'Connor, and every day I woke up and and would kind of tick off the list of people that that I knew of who knew more about her than I did, and it was it was hard to um, it's hard to push through that every yeah. morning, knowing that there are a lot of people who are more qualified to do this than I am, but I was the one who was doing it. I mean, you know, that, that was my job that day to do it, not to, to, it didn't matter. There are people, there are still people who know, you know, yeah. way more than I do on, on this subject, but yeah. 
oh, well. In some ways, when you're engaging with a figure like Flannery O'Connor or with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you're, you're trying to befriend them. And there's right. going to be something that you see in your friendship with them that's unique. Mm-hmm. And no one else might may be able to share that, but other people would be able to say, well, that's not really Flannery or that might be you or that's not really Dietrich. So yeah, there's, you kind of have to assess that out. I had to learn to wake up and think about the people who might need this book instead Mm -hmm. of the people who already know so much that they don't need it. Yeah. Did you find that with Flannery O'Connor? I needed to write this book. I had to write it to help myself remember. That's what yeah. I, that's why I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And um, I, you know, when, when I finished that book and it took me forever, I don't know, 20, 20 months, 24 months, and it's not a big book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the day after I submitted that manuscript, I got up the next morning and wanted to read some Flannery O'Connor because I just loved her <laughs> that much, you know? And um, uh, yeah. So anyway, um, Okay. I always end these conversations with the question, who are the writers who make you want to write? Yeah, I'm ready. Um, I Good. love that question. I love discovering who people love to. So um, Penelope Fitzgerald, Oliver O'Donovan. Know. You don't know Penelope Fitzgerald? Wait, I, no. Okay, start over. Penelope okay. Fitzgerald? Yeah, Blue Flower. Do you know Penelope Fitzgerald? No. Oh you must. She's okay. She's incredible. She also, what I adore about her too, is that she, she did some of her meatiest and most award-winning writing in her like 70s and 80s. Really? Yeah. Like she's a perfect ripening figure. Oliver O'Donovan in political theology. Okay. Um, Kathleen Norris, who I've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then in poetry, Denise Levertov, mm. Kay Ryan. Um, I love Kathleen Patterson. Um, you know, yeah. she went like bridge to Terabithia. Like I love, oh, she's a genius. Yeah. Um, particularly her, I actually really like her nonfiction, um, her spying heart book. And she has another book that I actually am completely blank on the title, but she called it her kitchen sink memoirs. It's like huh. the stories that she would tell her family members as they wash dishes at the kitchen sink. I love her yeah. nonfiction. Yeah. yeah. That's it. I'll leave it well, at that. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you told me about Penelope, Penelope Fitzgerald. I did not know about her. Blue so. Flower. Um, she also wrote uh, The Bookshop. She's an incredible, incredible writer. Is she American? She's British. Okay. She's also deceased. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Laura Fabricy, thank you so much. This was great. And uh, I know this wasn't a great time to release a book, but I I hope a lot of people read it and are blessed by it. Thanks so much, Jonathan. I appreciate it. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. 
This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.